Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. With that, we'll, we'll stand and begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And sing the, the hymn of Pentecost. Blessed are you, O Christ our God, who have filled the fishermen with wisdom by sending down the Holy Spirit upon them, and who through them have caught in your net the whole world, O lover of mankind, glory to you. Bow down your head to the Lord. May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy come upon you through his grace and his love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Our program this evening will go for about 45-50 minutes. Uh, we'll take a short break for refreshments, and then back down for this second 45 to 50 minutes. As you know, we are here for three talks in a row, Tuesday, Thursday, and then Saturday morning. Where else are you going to get six hours in one week with a biblical scholar, and, and a biblical scholar who's faithful? And also, take notes. Please take notes. And I know he'll be speaking about this as he gets started here, but if you're not taking notes, it's in one ear and it's out the other. Okay, if you're taking notes, it helps you concentrate. Do I really have to read a bio for my brother? Maybe I'll just tell a story about him. <laughs> Our speaker this evening received his doctorate in biblical studies from the Catholic University of America. Subdeacon Sebastian is a full-time instructor in sacred scripture and biblical language at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary at the Fraternity of St. Peter in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's also the academic director of the Permanent Diaconate Formation Program of the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a lecturer in sacred scripture at Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College. He also happens to be my brother, and his wife is here with us, Leela. They have five children and come from Denton, Nebraska. Please join me in welcoming back Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Does everyone have the map? Yep. Okay. You don't have to have it, but you'll find it's helpful. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you'll find it's very helpful to have a map. Why is that? Because you're not in that land, right? If I were to describe to you, you know, today on the way here, I left Fairfax Station, and as I was getting on the 495, and then there was, I thought there would be rush hour traffic, but there was nothing. I came onto the 495, and it was open. All the way till I got to about the exits of, uh, for Route 7, and then all of a sudden it started backing up. So I thought, should I get off at Route 7? Because I knew I could come, on to, come to the church another route. Okay. You all understand exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Why? Because you know the area, you know the geography, you know the issues of what happens at what time, what rush hours. And unfortunately, as we're reading through the Bible, a lot of times, 
We don't know the geography. We don't know the layout of Jerusalem or the layout of Galilee. And so it's just some information. Uh, or just some, you know, places and names. And just like, can you imagine me just telling you that story and you weren't from this area? It would have just gone all over your head, right? So you'd think, oh, I guess there was, there's something about traffic and Route 7, what, what is, where that is. Where's Fairfax Station? I don't know. Well, that's how, unfortunately, when we read the Bible, that's how a lot of it just goes right over our head. And so what can help you with that is having a map of some sort, a Bible map. Any kind of Bible map, anything, will be helpful for you. I would recommend very highly for you, this is just a handout, but something like this, this is called the Bible map insert. The Bible map insert from Sunlight Publishers. There's all sorts of different options like this. This is one that can um, stick inside your Bible. It actually has a sticky part that will make it part of your Bible. But it has nice plasticized paper and everything. You can mark on it with erasable markers if you want. And layovers, modern sites over ancient sites. Wonderful, wonderful uh, little map insert all. But I always carry something like this with me in my Bible. If I come across something, where is that? I go look it up. So it keeps embedding into your mind these locations and relationships of where they are. Especially, uh, well, any of the stories of the Bible, Old and New Testament, are like this. Uh, one area of the Bible that is, where this is extremely important is when you're reading through Acts and the Pauline epistles. Paul's traveling all over Asia Minor and into Greece, Macedonia. What's going on? Where is he going? Why does he go here next? And well, it's usually because we don't know the layout of that region that we have trouble following it. And once you follow on a map where he is going and when he wrote his epistles and where he wrote them and why he wrote them, it comes to life. Right? So a Bible map of some sort, this is just a simple handout. Mark it up. Make some marks on it. Highlight things as we go through. Scribble on it. That's what it's there for. But get something like this for your Bible eventually. A lot of Bibles have a Bible map in them, but make sure you use them. Right? Okay, over the next... Three meetings together, we're going to be talking about the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the Apostle. Really exciting. Tonight, we're going to do a little introduction to the Gospel and get into the text a bit, and then we're going to eventually look at some more on Thursday, and then Saturday we'll finish off the Gospel together. It's going to be a marathon, a bit of a race, because there's a lot in there. Six hours, my brother already used up a lot of it when he was talking, so... <laughs> Okay, so the Gospel of Matthew, first of all, it's written by Matthew. How do you know that? It's right there. Look, the Chinese publishers who gave me this, uh, they say it's Matthew, right? It's published in China, and so I know. How do you know it's written by Matthew? The church. The early church tells you it's written by Matthew. Matthew didn't write at the beginning of his Gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to me. No, no ancient authors did that. But we know by tradition that this story about Jesus goes back to the apostle Matthew. It's the early church that tells us that. Really important. That witness from the early church, we owe a lot to that early church. It's because of that early church that we're sitting here today. Matthew the Apostle, what do you know about him? He's called Levi in some places. He shows up in Matthew's Gospel as a tax collector when Jesus calls him from the tax booth. We're going to see that. And uh, he's, if he's a tax collector, he's 
pretty well educated. He knows how to count well. He's interested in numbers, right? And what else are tax collectors interested in in that period? What is what important for them? Hmm? Money. But how do they figure out how much money you owe? Hmm? Assess your property? Yeah, what you own, sure. Uh, they figure it out depending on you know, your property, your inheritance, where you come from, where you live. We're going to see Joseph and Luke's gospel has to travel because of a, a, a tax collection that's coming with the census of Quirinius. So tax collectors knew who you were, who your dad was, who your dad's dad was, all of that. They knew your genealogy, and they also knew how to count real well. Really important. We're going to see that in Matthew's gospel. So he's a tax collector. A lot of important things there we can talk about as we go along. We'll, we'll see some of, the, uh, some of the other aspects of why that's important. Composition. When did he write it? According to the early church, Matthew was the first gospel written of the four that we have. There may have been some other gospels that we don't have or some short versions of these types of things that we don't have anymore. Luke refers to others having written things down. We don't know exactly what he's referring to there. He could be referring to Matthew or Mark's Gospel. But as far as we know from the early church tradition, Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis, says that Matthew wrote his Gospel in Aramaic, or he says the tongue of the Hebrews, which at that time was Aramaic. It could be Hebrew, but highly unlikely from what we know of uh, from that period. So he wrote the Gospel down, as far as we can discern, in Aramaic. And Papias, Bishop Papias of Hierapolis says, and everyone translated as best as he was able. So as far as we can discern, the Greek text that we have, which was received by the church from a very early period, and it's quoted from, uh, in the Greek texts of the early church fathers, comes to us, it's a translation of the original Aramaic. Again, that's very helpful to know when you're dealing with a lot of passages in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew wrote this Gospel down, St. Matthew wrote this Gospel down, as we can discern also from the early church writings, and also from the structure of the Gospel, and some of the information that's in there, and some of the information that's not in there, that... It was completed long before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus prophesies in Matthew chapter 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem. Not one stone will be left upon another. But there's no mention of it having been fulfilled. The gospel writers, if they could, they would jump in and show you where something Jesus said was fulfilled. Right? John's gospel. Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And then John breaks in and says, we, the disciples, did not know what he was talking about until after he was risen from the dead and we knew he was talking about his body. Right? You see how they jump in there and comment on it? No comment like that in Matthew chapter 24 except this, let the reader understand, which indicates to you that whoever says that in the text, and we'll look at that when we get to Matthew chapter 24, sees the fulfillment of those prophecies right around his time. So that would place the text somewhere probably in the 60s, maybe mid-60s, possibly even late-60s. And again, it has to do a uh, question mark about the Aramaic to the Greek, and we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, uh, and now structure. This is very important for the Gospel. Literary structure is very important. Whenever you're looking at a book or an ancient work, always look at its literary structure. It'll help you understand the text. Uh, so when you look at a, new, a book you're going to read, look at the table of contents, see how it's laid out. It'll help you see where the book is going. So Matthew has broken this gospel down into five parts. Could be just a coincidence, but if this is the earliest gospel written in Aramaic for Palestinian Christians, why five? Why would that be important? Well, five should make you think of the Pentateuch, right? The five scrolls or the five books of Moses called the Torah. 
And as we're going to find in this gospel over and over, Jesus is going to refer to the old Torah and say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Right? New law. So now, enough introductory stuff. Let's get into the text. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, what do you think of when you hear the word Christ? What do you think of when you hear the word, the name Jesus? Messiah. Let's start with Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? What does Jesus, what does it remind you of? Savior, God. What did I hear? Joshua. Yoshua, Yehoshua, and Jesus are the same name. And we miss that in our English translations. And so a lot of the parallels and things between Jesus and Joshua, or Joshua and Joshua, or Jesus and Jesus, we miss that. And it's only in our English translations that we do that. You know, you hear some kid, what's that kid's name? Uh, uh, mijo, his name is uh, Jesus. Jesus? Oh. But we'll, we're perfectly fine naming a kid Joshua, right? It's the same name. In Hebrew, Yehoshua or Yeshua in Aramaic or Jesus, it's the same name. One of the earliest typological comparisons we have in the Fathers of the Church St. Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo makes a comparison between Jesus and Jesus. Joshua and Joshua, and he shows how the life of Christ parallels the life of Joshua in the Old Testament. A lot of parallels to that, and I'll, I'll point those out to you when we get to them. Okay, so Yahushua, what does it mean? Yahweh, Hoshia. Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves, depending on how you want to translate it or point it in the, in the Hebrew. So Yahweh saves. It's going to be important uh, as we come to the end of the chapter here. The Christ. What does it mean, the Christ? The anointed one. Very good. Most people think, a lot of, when they hear the word Christ or Messiah, they think it's his last name, or it means he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and they, you know, they're moving in the right direction. However, the word Christ is a word from the Old Testament. Who was the first Christ in the Bible? You sure you could say Adam, the first anointed? Who was the first one to have the title? Let me simplify it. The title Christ. Very good. Saul. Cyrus was one of them as well. Saul. Right? Saul. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we hear about Samuel anointing Saul, pouring oil on his head. In the Hebrew, mashach, he poured oil. Or krio, from the, the Greek root krio. Christos, mashiach. This is, these are just nominal forms from that root, the anointed one, in Hebrew or in Greek. And in chapter 12, in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, Saul is referred to as the Christ. Hamashiach in the Hebrew there. O Christos in the Greek. Same in the Latin. In the English Bibles, they typically put anointed there, which is perfectly fine. That's a translation of it. But a lot of times we forget the relationship between these two things. So Jesus the Christ, the anointed king, and now you understand why Yahweh saves. How does Yahweh save his people? Through the king. The king is the one, 1 Samuel chapter 10, who saves them from their enemies round about and rules over them. In the ancient world, the king was the king because he was your savior. He saved you from your enemies and therefore had the right to rule over you. When war came, when the enemy was coming, the king didn't stay in Washington, D.C. and push buttons and make phone calls. He put on his armor, got out his sword, got in his big fancy chariot, and he went out to the front lines of the battle. And he fought for you. 
And then he came back victorious. And of course you would let him rule over you, right? You would, oh, well, you know, that was nice, thanks for saving us, but I'm not going to obey your rules. Well, then he's not going to go out and save you next time. Right? There's an intimate relationship between the two things. And you'll find over and over in the narratives of the rise of the king of Israel in the Old Testament, you keep hearing those two jobs, really twofold, uh, the, same, the same job, to rule over you and save you from your enemies roundabout. Important in the New Testament, of course. Son of David. Why son of David? Why is that important? Hmm? The line of kings, right? 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. I can't say that enough times. This is one of the most important, if not the most important messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And tragically, Christians are usually unaware of it. They have a sense of the idea that's behind it, but they're not aware of the text. What's going on in 2 Samuel 7? Well, you remember, we talked about Saul already. Saul was the anointed king of Israel. The Holy Spirit came down upon him when Samuel poured oil on his head. And then Saul was empowered by the Spirit of God to go out and do the job of God. Save the people from the enemies roundabout and rule over them. Right? The people of Israel had asked for a human king, not just a divine king. Yahweh was the king of Israel. Now they had two kings. But you remember the story of Saul. Three strikes and you're out. Saul messed up three times. Big times. And God sent Samuel to anoint a different king. Another king who would be after his heart. That was David. And we hear about that story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David is anointed. Again, Samuel shows up with some olive oil, pours it over his head, and he is now the Christ. The Holy Spirit, it says, comes down upon him. So then David goes out, and notice when he starts fighting and winning the battles, Saul gets worried. Why? Because the king is the one who fights your battles, saves your enemies, and therefore has the right to rule over you. And Saul starts to get nervous when he sees that. David, eventually, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, David takes Jerusalem, the hill of the Jebusites, as his capital city. This is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant in, He's going to make it his religious and, and political capital. And in chapter 7, we hear about him wanting to build a house for the Lord. He says, I dwell, I dwell in this beautiful palace of cedar, so the Lord should have a nice house. And God sends Nathan the prophet to tell David, you're not building me a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. And what it means there in the text is he's going to build David a dynasty. David's son shall sit on the throne over Israel forever. And one of your sons, David, who comes from your loins, one of your sons will be my son, and he shall build a house for my name. Okay. Now, who does that? Who is the fulfillment of that? Perfect. Yes and yes. Solomon, Jesus. Remember, prophecies in the Bible are not simply a prophet says something and then it's fulfilled. You wait 500 years and there it is. Rather, as you look at the prophecy, it usually has a fulfillment right there in the historical context, almost immediately. And then again, and again, and again, like a flower, budding and flowering and flowering and flowering over and over again, getting more beautiful and fragrant with every flower. Multiple valences upon a prophecy because the word of God is eternal. And so as you look through the Old Testament, we don't have time to look at all these examples together, uh, but there are a number of examples of prophecies, and I'll point some of these out to you. 
where you see the prophecy fulfilled and then fulfilled again and then fulfilled again. And so when you get to the New Testament, sometimes you're looking at a third or fourth or fifth fulfillment of a prophecy. And the New Testament authors are expecting you know everything that happened in between. Because each one of them in some ways manifests in a much more greater way the meaning of that prophecy. And the last and great final fulfillment in Jesus the Christ is usually somehow seen progressively getting more and more uh, detailed as you go through all these other prophecies. Okay? Alright, Son of David, 2 Samuel 7, right? Now, right there in this verse, you already have the first half of the gospel. Second half of the gospel, we're going to see in the next line, Son of Abraham. Why is that important? He's a son of Abraham. Because of the promises very good. Remember, Abraham was promised what? The great and final promise. That's right. Through your seed, it says, and this is in Genesis chapter 22. We also see in other places, Genesis chapter 12. Through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. Not just Abraham. Abraham was called from the nations for the sake of the nations. Israel was called from the nations for the sake of the nations. To be a priestly people, right? A priest isn't just someone who hangs out with God, right? The priest is in between the people and the God, right? Israel was to be a priestly nation, to mediate between the nations and God, to bring them into relationship with Him. They failed to do that, unfortunately, as we see in the Old Testament. However, that's another issue. So, He is the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, and son of Abraham. And as you read through the rest of this gospel, and we'll look at this together, you'll see, and I'll keep reminding you of the structure, son of David, we're going to see the fulfillment of that throughout this first half of the gospel, and it will climax in chapter 16, when he will say to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon will say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, 2 Samuel 7. And what was 2 Samuel 7 all about? building the house for the Lord. Remember, David wanted to do that. That's what brought about this promise to him. And that's why you hear that language all of a sudden of him building the house, building the church, the house of God, ecclesia, the gathering place for God's people. And then we enter into the second part of the gospel, where the Messiah is now revealed as God. And that, that second half of the gospel climaxes and concludes at the end with that beautiful promise and commandment, go out to all nations, not just the 12 tribes of Israel, to all nations now, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I've taught you. And behold, I am with you forever. Right? Why does he say that? Because he is the son of Abraham, through whom all the nations shall be blessed. To bring the, all of the children of God, all of the people, all the nations, back into the kingdom back into the garden, back where they came from. So, chapter 1, verse 2. Don't worry, we'll move quicker now. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh, we remember that one. And is the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of, of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, and uh, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. 
right? We heard about Jesus the Christ, now we're at David the King. Second time we hear a title, see the relationship? David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Oops, we remember that one. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Bad guy. And Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of good Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. What do those names mean to you? <laughs> Should I ask you some questions about some of them? What a tragedy, huh? Listen, if I walked into your house and said, do you have any pictures of your parents? Oh, yeah, yeah, over here, right here. And uh, can you tell me about your, your dad's father? Where was he from? Oh, well, he immigrated from... Do you have any pictures of him? Oh, yeah, and you pull off the shelf, a photo album maybe, and you can start telling me family stories, right? This is what a genealogy was to the ancient people. The photo album, how it functions today. Every one of these names, any one of the Palestinian Christian audience who heard this gospel, who heard the faith from the apostles, could tell you stories about every one of these individuals. Not only stories that are in the text, but even stories that had passed down in their memory. And we can't. What a tragedy, right? So how are you going to solve that problem? You've got to get to work. Take the TV, put it in the trash can, put the lid on it, and get to work. Right? How much time do we spend staring at that box? Right? Not going to see TV, and it's important to be aware of things, I know. But we spend a lot of time staring at that TV on a daily basis. Figure out how much time you spend on a daily basis looking at that thing. Right? Over a week's period on average. So... Verse 12, after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shetiel, Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and Joseph the father of Jesus, and... Oh no. Something happened, right? And it's intended that way. This thing is rolling along. And then, all of a sudden, he breaks from that pattern because there's something different about this son. Look at the passive language. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Look at the framing device, too. Right? Christ at the beginning, Christ at the end, David, the title of David the king, in the middle of it, in the midst of it. Why does he tell you that? What he has just told you in this genealogy He's going to now explain to you in the next two parts of the chapter. He says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So first he's going to explain to you the genealogy and why he listed all these names for you. He could have just told you, Abraham, who after many generations bore David, who after a few generations bore on and on. But he laid these out for you for a reason. Why did he do this? He explains that in the next couple of verses. Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon. 14 generations. The deportation of Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. 14. 14. 14. Man, next time I go to Vegas, I've got to remember that number. It's a, okay. <laughs> the 14th. All right? 14. Come on, lucky 14. So what is 14? 
Well, some sometimes people think, well, it's two times seven. Seven's God's lucky number. And two, it's really lucky, I guess. But now there's three times, so that's really lucky. What's happening here? Well, remember in the ancient world, they didn't have two different symbol systems for counting and for writing. They used one. Most of you are familiar with the, uh, the Roman numeral system, right? Those are the letters from the Roman alphabet or the Roman version of the Phoenician alphabet. There's an example in our, uh, today where you can see that. But in the ancient world, all the ancient peoples, they did the same thing. They had one number system or one symbol system coming from the Phoenician alphabet for this region, and they counted with it, and they wrote with it. And so it's very easy for them to move between numbers and words. This isn't numerology in today, the way people think of it today, but it was very simple. I mean, you'd see a name, and it was just like seeing, you know, 2046. Oh, no, I'm sorry, not 2046, it's Fred. Okay, so it was very simple for them to do that because it was the exact same system of symbols. The name David, David adds up to 14. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Wow, or Vav. Dalet, Wow, Dalet. 14. So for them it was very simple. That's 14. David, David, David. Three times. And now you're talking about a very important number in the Bible, the number three. Throughout the Bible you'll find the number three is the perfect number. Any of the descendants from Abraham to David, from David to this time, could have been the fulfillment of all of this. And yet... It has happened the 14th generation times three, the perfect moment for it to occur. So that's why he lists those out for you. But look at the passive language in verse 16. He'll explain that to you in verse 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus, the Christ, that is the anointed king, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. Now betrothal in the ancient world was very serious. It's not like a modern American engagement. You were betrothed, you were basically married in the sense that we would think of today, without the consummation, without living together yet. The living together and consummation of the marriage was just basically the conclusion basically, of the betrothal service. Very serious. So today, again, you could break off an American engagement like that. Oh, didn't work out, too bad. I didn't like the way he blew his nose or something. But then it was very serious. And if one of them had relations with someone else during that time, it was considered adultery, and therefore you could be stoned. That's how serious they took this. So they were betrothed, but before they came together, she was found to be a child. Okay, now why does he tell you that? For obvious reasons, to show you that Joseph had no physical cause of this conception. Okay? Now, before they came together, she was found to be a child of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important, the Holy Spirit? He could have just told you by the power of God. Holy Spirit. How do we begin the gospel? Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. Pouring oil over Saul's head or over David's head, we hear about the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. We see from the very beginning of his conception, he is identified as the anointed king they've been waiting for. Right? The one filled with the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Jacob, that's all it says, right? Joseph, son of David, could you imagine thinking, son of David, doesn't this angel know my dad? 
Oh, yeah. So why does he say that to him? Because Joseph has to stick around. He is critical for this story. Jesus is going to be born son of David, son of God, 2 Samuel 7, right? So he has told Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. You shall call him. Why? Why does he have to call him? This is the adoption in the Jewish world. The father naming the child. He's a legal son now, legal heir to the family line. Very important for 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, all the natural sons of David were by adoption sons of God. Here we have an adopted son of David who by nature is son of God from all eternity. And so he is going to name him to give him the legal authority of the line of David. Very important that he sticks around in the story. And his name is going to be Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their enemies round about. Oops. Oh, yeah, the real enemy, sin. Not the Romans. We'll deal with them eventually. Not the Greeks from before, the Medo-Persian Empire, the real enemy, sin. And he's going to deal with the real enemy and what comes from sin, death. So again, you can see where this gospel is headed. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Well, I'm trying to get all the details of the narrative there back in Isaiah and the time of Ahaz and Hezekiah. It's great stuff. But we'll find as we go through Matthew's gospel, especially this infancy narrative, that he continuously quotes back and reminds you of the context of the time of Ahaz and Hezekiah. Okay, and we'll see why he's doing that as we go along with the other quotes. Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. You'll notice that Joseph does whatever the angel says. If the angel, think about the other characters in the Bible. Right? Think of Zechariah in the temple, the angel showing up. Think of Abraham speaking with God. They're, they're questioning and things. Here, Joseph just wakes up and does it. Why? Because Joseph was a just man, it says. To be just, dikaisune, to have righteousness, was to be a perfect follower of the Torah. That is what God says, you do it. And Joseph is the just man, the righteous man. Whatever God says, he does it. Whatever God says through the angel, he does. It's important for the narrative. But he knew her not until she bore a son, and he called his name Yahweh saves. But why does he tell you that? Anyone ever been uncomfortable sitting, listening? Shouldn't be sitting, listening to it anyway. Should be standing, but listening to the gospel during Christmas, during nativity. You hear this reading until she... Wow, that's, that's what my Baptist friend says. Mm. Right? And modern American Protestants will refer to this verse along with the reference to Jesus being the firstborn in Luke's gospel and the references to the brethren of the Lord. So brethren of the Lord, firstborn in Luke's gospel here until to argue for Mary having children after the birth of Jesus. 
most modern American Protestants are completely unaware that this is not the original Protestant position. Eric Zwingli, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of them condemned that craziness. Why is that? Well, because they were educated. Uh, and they knew that in the Greek here, the Greek word heos can have two different types of meanings. In the English, until, we tend to use the modern word English in a very restricted way. I was eating until I was full. Well, you know that I stopped eating. I was running until I saw the car. Well, I stopped running. But until is actually a perfectly fine translation here, but not in modern English. It's used there in an archaic sense in English. You can hear uh, sometimes, if I were to say to you, for example, the pilgrims and the Indians ate turkey together on the first Thanksgiving. You all know that didn't actually happen. But, uh, and we, we have eaten turkey until today because of this. Now, does that mean that we're not going to eat turkey tomorrow? So you would never think that, but you would hear me say that and think, gosh, that's a strange construction, but I've heard people say that before. It's an older English construction. Heos has this same range. It can mean an action all the way up to a time with no implication of a change in action afterwards. In fact, it's assumed it will continue. Or an action up to a point, and then it changes. More like we use the word until today. In Greek, it's all by context, how it is being used. This is the same as ad in Hebrew, adma in Aramaic. It's the same thing. It has double, double usage. Examples for uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. When David brings the ark into Jerusalem, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looks out and he sees David dancing before the ark. She's a little upset because the skirt's going up and there's some girls out there. And so he comes in to bless his house and she says, oh, how the king has uncovered himself in front of the women of the city. David and Michal had a rough relationship from then on. And it tells us the last line of 2 Samuel 6 that Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. <laughs> hmm. Imagine you're in the cemetery in Jerusalem. <laughs> Whoa, hey, get a shovel. What's going on in there? So until, this is in Greek, it's heos in the Septuagint, in the Hebrew it's uh, ad, and in the Aramaic, in the Peshitta it's adma. Same thing, Psalm 110. Think of Psalm 110. Uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? Again, in the, in the Hebrew of, of Psalm 110, it's uh, ad, and in the Aramaic, in the Peshitta, adma, in the Greek, in the, in the Septuagint, heos. Now what does it mean there? Obviously, you know by context, it doesn't mean that after the father has made his enemies his footstool, he can no longer sit at his right hand. That's crazy, right? In fact, it implies the action will continue, right? So the question is, how is it being used here? And the problem for us today in modern America is that we have modern biology. And so some of the things that they thought of in the ancient world are just not things that cross our mind. In the ancient world in this period, there was a belief that if a woman was pregnant, she conceived before they came together. If a woman was pregnant and then she had relations with another man, whether she was raped or whatever, an adulterous situation, that the child born would be one of two options. Either the child born, when it was born, would be the son of the second man, supersession, or it would be a mixture of the seed of the two. You think, come on, that's impossible. I mean, I had genetics and I... That, in the eighth grade. I mean, so, well, they didn't have that kind of information back then. And so this is what they understood. This is what they thought. And so it's very important for Matthew to tell you two 
critical bits of information. She conceived this child before they came together. Therefore, Joseph is not the natural father. And furthermore, she bore this child before they came together. Right? He had no relations with her until she gave birth. Critical information for you. Now, what is Matthew trying to tell you then? He's trying to show you that there was nothing going on from the moment this child was conceived to the moment the child was born, lest you think that, because again, he could just give you the first bit of information, and if you were of that period, you would say, well, but what about after the child was conceived? Oh, no. They had no relations until the child was born. So that's what he's trying to do here. Again, the church has always understood that, because the church is in old languages. Yerk Swingley, Martin Luther, John Calvin said the exact same thing. If you want to see it, you can on the internet, uh, John Calvin's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. It says this exact same thing. Okay, now, chapter 2. When Jesus was born at Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Herod the king, oops, Jesus, who is the Christ, right? We have a problem, tension in the story, who, during the time of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Wise men coming from the east. What's going on here? If you look in your Bibles back in Numbers chapter 24, you hear of a story of a prophet or a wise man named Balaam. He was called from the east to come and curse the people of Israel. But when he came, God wouldn't allow him to curse the people of Israel for the Midianites. But every time he opened his mouth, he blessed them. The Midianites were not happy about this. So, in his last prophecy, or his last blessing upon the people of Israel, as you're looking down from the mountains of, of Moab, he says, this is in Numbers chapter 24, I behold him, but not nigh. He sees him from a distance. He has this vision. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star will come forth from Jacob. You Moabites and Midianites think you're in trouble now? Wait till those people have a king. Right? Remember, the king was the great warrior on the front line. Up to this point, Israel had been moving through the wilderness for 40 years, and anyone who stood in front of them was mowed down. And the Moabites and the Midianites were frightened. and think, how are we going to fight against these people? We need a prophet to curse them. And the prophet tells them, it's going to get worse for you because they're going to have a great warrior on the front line next time you go up against them. So now, wise men come again from the east following a star, right? The star has arisen in Jacob, the scepter in Judah, right? The king has been born. David was the first fulfillment of this, and the first one to give the Midianites and Moabites a lot of trouble, and this is where we get that idea of the star of David. But prophecies are fulfilled over and over again, every time they get greater, and here, the second chapter of Matthew, we see the great fulfillment. The star has arisen, the king, the scepter, right? So they come, these wise men come from the east following the star. And they go to the king, to Herod, and they say, where is the king? What king? Excuse me? So he calls together all of the educated, the wise men, the priests and everything, and the Sanhedrin wakes them up in the middle of the night and says, hey, we got a, um, uh, no problem, sorry, excuse me, we have um, 
how should I say, uh, there's some guys here that are wondering about a king being born. What do you know about it? Now, why doesn't Herod know about it? Notice they respond. Well, Micah the prophet said in Bethlehem the king would be born, you Edomite. Herod was on the throne, but an illegitimate holder of the throne. Herod's dad was an Edomite. His mom was an Ishmaelite. He was not of the line of David. He wasn't even of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't even of the people of Israel. And all the Jews at the time knew it. And this is why Herod was constantly trying to build the temple, tearing things down, rebuilding it, plating things in gold, because 2 Samuel 7 said the heir to the throne of David would build the temple. So Herod was constantly doing this. His sons did the same thing after he died. But everyone knew he wasn't the real king. And so when Herod calls them together, they tell him, Micah the prophet said that the king, the Messiah, would be born in the village of David, in Bethlehem. So, verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and I too may come and worship him. Mm -hmm. Now, worship there in the Greek, uh, in a certain sense, a double meaning here uh, for us, the audience of the text. Herod is not saying to them he's going to worship this king as God. He's going to bow down, do honor to him. Verse 9, and when they had heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on uh, before them until it came to the rest of the place where the child was. Notice it says the child here, not the babe. Right? The child. How long does it take to travel from the far east? You don't go across the desert. You've got to go across the, you got to come up and over the Fertile Crescent, otherwise you'd die in the, in the desert. How long does it take to get from somewhere over by the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq, over to Jerusalem? This is before trains and 747s and all that kind of stuff. On camels, it takes a while. So we can calculate approximately, this would have been about maybe a year, year and a half, maybe two years, somewhere between a year to two years. And this is why we see it is a child, not a baby. And they're living in a house, not in the cave, in the stable anymore. Joseph is obviously, they're built a house or purchased a house for them in Bethlehem. Verse 11, and they going into the house, they saw the child where Mary's mother, and they fell down, worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In Isaiah chapter 60, in Isaiah chapter 60, we hear about in the restoration of the kingdom, all nations will gather together and bring their treasures to Jerusalem and to the kingdom, gold and frankincense. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for that Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and he said, I just bought this house. <laughs> no, notice he just gets up and he goes. Joseph does whatever God says through the angel. Joseph the just. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. This is a quote from Hoshea, the prophet Hoshea. This is a reference to the people of God in general. Corporate Israel, corporate son of God. In Exodus chapter 4, God says to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh to let my son go, let Israel go, for Israel is my firstborn son. 
that imagery is going to start to be developed here in this in the, this in the next chapter. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Right? When did the star appear? So he figured out approximately how old the kid was. Then was fulfilled was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing, loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. So, why does Herod do this? It seems like a little bit overdone, right? A child is born in backwater Bethlehem, and right? he's in Jerusalem. You look down, you can throw a rock down and hit the village of Bethlehem. What, what's that of any concern to him? Why would he be so concerned? We do know from Her about Herod, from other versions of the history, that Herod was crazy. So this fits in perfectly for his paranoia, the caricature. Herod killed his wives, killed his kids. He was crazy. But why a little baby is born, and what's the big deal? Why doesn't he just send some soldiers over there? Wait till sunrise, ask around, find the kid, take him out. But instead, he sends his soldiers over there and takes out all the boys that are even close to this age in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. Why would he do that? What is scaring him so much about this child? There were rebellions all the time. But again, Herod, his son, he worried about his son, you know, kill him. But here he takes out all the boys in the entire region. Go back to Numbers chapter 24. Hold your hand there and flip back to Numbers chapter 24. And we might get some insight. The New Testament authors, when they quote from the Old Testament, assume you, the Christian, Knows the Old Testament like the back of their hand. Okay? Unfortunately, we don't. And so they'll quote from one line and they think you know the next line. Sometimes it's intended to be humorous. In John's Gospel, they say to Jesus, We are stoning you because of blasphemy. You make yourself out as God. He says, Well, didn't I say that you were all gods? Quoting from the Psalms. Right? And then it goes on. The story goes on. The humor is, the next line of the psalm says, but you shall all die like men. Right? Whenever you hear a quotation from the Old Testament, if you don't know the chapter from which it's coming, and you don't know the lines before and after, go back and look at it. It's usually the next line that's intended to be the punchline. So, Numbers chapter 24. We hear of Balaam's prophecy. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is synonymous parallelism in Hebrew. Same thing. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Again, the Moabite king who had hired Balaam, he didn't like that one. And break down all the sons of Seth. Verse 18, Edom shall be dispossessed. So, this is not just a prophecy about a star rising, and isn't that kind of neat? Some wise men came from the east. But this is a prophecy of the rise of Judah and Israel over Edom again. The Edomites have not had a lot of power over Israel for a real long time. Remember Esau and Jacob, all the battles? So throughout the history of those, the sense of those people, Israel has constantly had power over Edom. And anytime Edom gets a chance to, they come back and bite Israel. And now, strangely enough, turn of history, an Edomite 
is on the throne over Jacob. But not for long. Not for long. Judah is going to rise in power again. Israel will rise and the great king will be born and dispossess Edom. So, in Matthew chapter 2, we understand now, not only is Herod paranoid, but he has some reason for paranoia in this case. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who shot the child's life are dead. And Joseph said, I just got here. <laughs> Can you imagine a carpenter having to move like this, right? But notice, he gets up and goes, right? Over and over again. We're going to see why in chapter 2. Verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus reigned over Judea, one of the sons of Herod, in place of his father, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was as crazy as dead. Verse 23, And he went and dwelt in a city of Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. What do you think of when you hear that? Nazarene. The Nazarite vow. But is that what's intended? What do you know about a Nazarite? And don't worry, this is what everyone typically thinks in, in, when they hear it. What do you know about a Nazarite in the Old Testament? It's Numbers chapter 6 where we have the rules. Right, well, anytime you took a vow, you shaved your head. It was assigned to everybody. That guy's under a vow. Figure out what it is before you go near him. So they would shave their head as the beginning of the vow, and then they wouldn't cut their hair. They let it grow long, which was not normal back then. They let it just keep growing and growing and growing. No man let it go beyond his shoulders unless he was under a vow. And it was a sign, hey, that guy's under a vow. And then when he was all done, he shaved his head again. So people knew, ah, the vow's over. Okay, so the Nazarite vow, they did that. But what was the Nazarite vow? It was an abstinence from, from alcohol, from wine, right? They abstained from wine. Not only wine, but even a raisin. They couldn't even eat a raisin. Why? Lest there might be some alcohol in it. Mm, Baptist in the Old Testament, huh? No, so what was the reason for this? If you go throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, wine is good. God gives it for what? Joy, right? Now, uh, Proverbs 31, give wine and strong drink to the sorrowing, it says. So, Throughout the prophets, Isaiah describes the restoration of the kingdom as the mountains dripping with wine. So, why would they do this? This was a temporary time giving up a good for the sake of a higher good. Not that the wine or raisins were bad, these were gifts from God. But giving up of that, a period of abstinence from that good for the sake of a higher good, to focus on prayer or uh, just like we have our fast today, right? Right now we're in the midst of the apostles' fast. Why? Because food is bad? No. Because flesh is bad? No. We give up a good for the sake of a higher good. Right? We train our bodies, our wills, so that when we encounter something which is tempting to us, like a piece of meat, now if we encounter something which is tempting to us, which is not good for us, which might be a sin, we're able to withstand it. We've trained our bodies. We've strengthened our wills, right? We've given up a good, meat, I love meat, for the sake of a higher good. Right? And the Nazarites did these things. And there are other reasons for this. But the Nazarites gave up wine. What else did they do? They never touched. That's right. Anything unclean, especially a dead body, even their parents. Otherwise, they'd start all over. They stayed away from unclean things. 
didn't touch anything, especially the ultimate unclean that is dead, and they didn't drink wine for this period, period of abstinence, period of fasting. What do you know about Jesus? He drank wine. In fact, he compares himself to John the Baptist over that very point. What does he mean? John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. That is, he didn't feast and he didn't drink wine on a daily basis like people did back then. Lunch and dinner. He says, but the son of man comes eating and drinking. They say he's a glutton and drunkard. You know the story of the wedding at Cana, right? So, obviously, Jesus was not a glutton. He was not a drunkard. But he did drink wine. Do you ever see him touch anything unclean? You ever see him touch any dead people? Right? But what do you know about Jesus? He keeps the law perfectly. He's the perfect son of God, the perfect Israelite. So he'd be a very bad Nazarite. So what does it mean, Nazarite? If anyone was a Nazarite in the period, it would John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel seems to allude to that in Luke chapter 1. So what, what does it mean he shall be called a Nazarene? In Greek, in the Septuagint, if you look at Numbers chapter 6, the word Nazir in Hebrew means to separate, to divide. The, the Nazirite would divide himself, separate himself from the people for a period of time. In Greek, they just put it as Nazir. They transliterate it. But in the Greek here of Matthew, it's Nazareos. It's a different word. What does it mean, Nazareos? Uh, this is from Pope Benedict's emeritus books. Okay. But the idea of the bud... The sprout shooting forth flower. I wonder if he's been reading the fathers. Hmm. Of course. Right? If you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, hold your hand there. The fathers of the church point to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 is the fulfillment. Or this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 1 is the fulfillment of that. Flip back to Isaiah. Again, we're seeing all these references to Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, right? The family line, the family tree of Jesse. It's been cut off, and something will come forth from it, right? You cut a tree down, the shoots come up. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. The word there in Hebrew is netzer. Netzer. And this just isn't one random odd spot where this is used. In the prophets, you'll find a number of references to the Messiah being referred to as a branch or a shoot or a sprout that's going to come forth. Sometimes it's tzamak in Hebrew or netzer. It was common for them to know this. So he's referring here, he's saying he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, just as he's been the fulfillment of a number of passages from Isaiah as he's been quoting from them for us. And how do we know that? Not only the fathers of the church tell us that that is the fulfillment, that this is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, but context, context, context. Remember, what's the next line here? Chapter 11, verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What's the next story in Matthew's gospel? Chapter 3 tells us about the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit of God will rest upon the Messiah. Okay, are there any questions just briefly with what we just saw? Any of the stuff immediately that I was going a little too quickly? Yes. Very smart. Yeah, the comment is there. So the, the, the issue was uh, regarding Joseph and Jesus. They go down to Egypt and they come back. It sounds like Israel. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like, right? And it's much more than simply that. As we'll see as we get here now into chapter three and four, we'll see that very point brought out, okay?
And again, we'll talk about this as we go through in more detail. Okay, so then, now, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness of Judea, and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do you think of when you hear kingdom of heaven? What's the image? Close your eyes. What do you see? Paradise? What? Lights? What else? Kingdom of heaven. Come on. The gates? Who's standing in front of the gates? Peter's there. He's got keys. Angels? Kingdom of heaven? Clouds? Lots of clouds. Fluffy. Very fluffy. Right? It's very white, fluffy. Jesus is there, hopefully. Yes, obviously. Yeah. Music? What kind of music? Harps? Oh, of course, right? They are. If you look at this passage and compare it to Mark and Luke, wherever you have in Matthew's gospel the kingdom of heaven, in Mark and Luke you have kingdom of God. And you think, okay, I'm not following you here. What's the big deal? Big deal. Matthew's gospel, remember, is very early. It's a very Semitic. It's written for a Palestinian Christian audience. And so you find all sorts of Semitisms in there. One of the things that Semites like to do, they tried to do, was avoid saying God. The name of God? No, not Yahweh, Adonai. Instead of saying Adonai, the Lord, and eventually Hashem, the name. So even things that referred to uh, the place where God dwells, again, they built these hedges, because the commandments say, you shall not profane the name of the Lord. In the context, they're using the Lord's name in a false oath. But hedges around the, the law to keep it safe, right? And so... Kingdom of heaven is a circumlocution in Matthew's gospel for kingdom of God. You see it in Mark and Luke, you compare the two, it's exactly the same passages. What is kingdom of God? And they, well, again, clouds, fluffy, harps, I mean, what's the difference? Well, what is the kingdom of God? Who is God's kingdom? Okay, we are here in northern Virginia. However, let's put ourselves back in Palestine, the first century. Garden of Eden, the Jews, Israel. You are my kingdom. I am your king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they said, we want a king to rule over us like all the nations, God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel, from being judge over them. They're rejecting me from being their king. And now they're in big trouble. So God is the king of Israel. Israel is his kingdom. I don't know about that. Sounds a little fishy. Flip back for a second to couple of passages that will help you see this in context. Remember, when Saul took the throne, eventually David, God didn't cease to be king over Israel. He remained as king of Israel, and the righteous kings understood that if they want to stay on the throne, they better be in line with the divine king. Right? They better reflect his will. And if they go out to battle, it's only the divine king that's going to really save you from your enemies roundabout and rule over you. And so the smarter of the human kings of Israel, understanding that, would try to do what God said. Saul, of course, was not one of the best examples. But if you flip back to the books of Chronicles, there are lots of passages we can look at, but I'll just turn you to two. First Chronicles chapter 28. After the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and you come to the books of Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 28. This is a reference back to, David refers back to that very important promise in 2 Samuel 7, which is also recorded in the books of Chronicles. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David assembles all of Israel in Jerusalem. 
And he says, God promised that a son would be born to me, and that son is Solomon. And look what he says in verse 5, chapter 28, verse 5. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. Solomon sat on the throne of God. Really? Oh, yeah. Because David was sitting on the throne of God. What that means is the throne upon which David sat, the, the position he had was the position of God, and he understood that. And they'd be careful, because if they ever got out of line, then they would be in big trouble. Because God continued to rule over his people, even when the, the human king would mess up. And so David says Solomon is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, at least the, the first fulfillment. He is the one who is going to sit on the throne. He said to me, it is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him as my son and I will be to him as a father. I will establish his kingdom forever. So we see David tells us that God said this is Solomon was the fulfillment, the initial fulfillment of this. As you read through the New Testament, obviously, Jesus is the great final fulfillment, the great son of David. However, notice here, and this is why I'm turning to this passage now, is the kingdom of the Lord, kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God. Again, another passage. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The kingdom of Israel eventually split into two parts along the Mason-Dixon line. There were northern, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Okay? And they went to war a lot. And in the midst of one of their wars, we see it recorded in chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles. The king in the south says to the northern kingdom, Who do you think you are to go to war against us? He says, chapter 13, verse 8, And now you, O Israel in the north, think to withstand the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, in the hand of the sons of David? You don't have a chance. So, look at that language. There's a number of other places I could turn you to. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel. God is their king. They are his kingdom. Okay? And that's why you say today, when I ask you, who, where, who's the kingdom of God? You say, we are. Well, yeah. The reason why you're saying that is because of the intermediary fulfillment. So, he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is about to be reestablished for 600 years. There has not been a son of David sitting on the throne over Israel. Ever since the Babylonians took Zedekiah, the last on the line of David, who was sitting on the throne, and stood before him all of his sons, and killed them in his eyes, and then poked his eyes out. So the last thing he saw was the end of his dynasty, and then dragged him off to Babylon, and there he died with a lot of the other exiles. For 600 years, there's not been a son of David ruling on the throne. Israel has been a vassal state to other nations, the Babylonians, the Assyrians before that, then the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and now the Romans are in control, and Pontius Pilate is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He's not even a king, he's a procurator. And they surely know Herod, the Edomite, and his sons had nothing to do with this. So they've been waiting and waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, would go on forever, but... It seems like things aren't working out too well here in the last 600 years. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's about to be fulfilled. No one questions that because they knew Daniel had prophesied in chapter 9 
that about this time, it was going to have to be fulfilled. 490 years from the proclamation to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile, depending on where you start counting, you're right here in this era. And in another couple of decades, Daniel's out of time and will be a false prophet. So they knew it was going to happen. And so John the Baptist goes out in the Jordan and he proclaims the kingdom of God is about to be fulfilled and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why repent? He says, verse 4, For this is he who spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah chapter 40, quoting from Handel's Messiah. <laughs> comfort, comfort my people. <laughs> Handel's Messiah obviously is assuming that the people at the time when Handel wrote that knew the context of Isaiah. So, Isaiah chapter 40. What does that have to do with John the Baptist? Everything. Isaiah had prophesied after chapter 39 and the, destruction, the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. In chapter 40, he prophesied that eventually all things would be restored. And it would be like a new exodus from Egypt. God would lead his people through the wilderness like he did when the cloud and the pillar of fire. But when they got back there, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt Jerusalem. And the glory cloud didn't appear. Remember, the purpose of the temple was to house the ark, the cherubic throne of God. Uh, in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, we hear that Jeremiah had hid it before the Babylonians came. And Indiana Jones was looking in the wrong spot. <laughs> so they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the Jerusalem, and the Holy of Holies is empty. Where is the ark? Where is the glory cloud of God? And now, just before this era, God sends them a prophet. And the prophet is called Malachi, my messenger, my angel. Angelos in Greek, Malach in Hebrew, messenger, the mailman. Malachi, the messenger, my messenger, was sent to deliver a message to the people. And Malachi... Chapter 1, we hear why God has been delayed in returning to his temple. The prophets had said, Ezekiel had said, when the temple is rebuilt, the glory cloud would reappear. The ark would be there, everything. The Messiah would be there. And it would be, you know, the kingdom of Solomon times infinity. But it doesn't look like it. What's going on? And so Malachi, if you turn in your Bibles to the prophet Malachi, he's the last of your prophets, usually in your canon of your prophets. Depending on your Bible, it's either the last of the Old Testament books in your canon, or you'll find it right before 1 Maccabees. Malachi tells them in chapter 1, the reason why the Lord has been delayed in his coming is because he is a loving father. He is a merciful God. And the problem with the people of Israel we hear in Malachi chapter 1 is they're treating God as if he needs their sacrifices. They're treating him as a pagan god. In the pagan world, you feed the gods with the sacrifices, and the flies come down as the mediators and all that stuff. The god is angry or unhappy with you, you feed him lunch, and he smiles and blesses you. That's paganism. That's not the Judeo-Christian understanding of sacrifice. God doesn't need anything from us. We need him. And so... The problem in, with Israel in chapter 1 of Malachi, we hear is they're offering to God sacrifices with blemishes, lame animals. Now, this doesn't matter to God, whether the animal is lame or blemished. What he's concerned about is why are they doing this? 
they think they're feeding him and making him happy. It's a liturgical factory. You, he's unhappy, and you do this, and he smiles. Right? Again, that's paganism and also Calvinism and a number of other things. So why are they doing this? Malachi says, you don't understand. God doesn't need your sacrifices. You need them. You need to learn how to give. God gives you animals. He gives you all this wealth so you can give back to him. It's like a father when his son comes up to him and says, Dad, can I borrow five bucks? Uh, yeah, sure, why? I want to buy you a birthday present. Oh, okay. So you can buy dollars, right? Now, does Dad need that? No. You give to the boy something so he can give you something back. Right? You're letting him learn how to give. And this is what God does with us. When Israel was told to give a free will offering to build the holy sanctuary where God would dwell among them, where did they get all that gold and silver that they eventually built the golden calf out of? God had given it to them from the Egyptians. Here, here's five bucks, son. So they'd have something to give back to him. God gives us everything we have so that we can be able to give back to him. Because he needs it? No, it's all his. But he wants us to learn to be like him. Because only when we learn to be like our Heavenly Father will we ever be happy. Will we ever be joyous and come to fulfillment of everything He created us for. Israel, unfortunately, as they did a number of times throughout their history, thought that God was desiring sacrifice instead of righteousness. Desiring sacrifice to be fed rather than they learning to be like Him. And so Malachi was sent to warn them that God has not come to His temple yet because if He came right now, you would all be burned up. The glory cloud would appear and you'd all be dead. And so he warns them, stop doing this. Offer right sacrifices to God. Why? Because God is hungry? No, because you will learn how to give like your heavenly Father and then you'll be ready for him. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send Malachi, my messenger, to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, remember the temple's empty, they're waiting, where's the glory cloud? Whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He's on his way right now, Malachi says. So you better get ready quickly. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. That's not just the little campfire in the backyard or in the campground, a refiner's fire, really hot. All impurities are burned up. And so in chapter 4 of Malachi, we hear what it's going to be like when he gets there. Chapter 4, now, if you have a New American Bible, steady, don't worry. There's only three chapters in Malachi in your New American Bible. I know that. It's chapter 3, verse 19. So if you only have three chapters in your prophet Malachi, turn to chapter 3, verse 19. If you have four chapters... Then it's chapter 4, verse 1. Same text. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers evil will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Have you ever seen a forest fire that never leaves a root? That's a really hot fire. Typically, a forest fire goes quickly through and burns and leaves trees standing there all blackened. This is a fire so hot that the tree will be completely burned up, even to the roots in the soil. Nothing left but a, long, a big field of ashes. Hot fire. But for you that fear my name, right? what does it mean to fear the name of Yahweh? That is to keep his law, right? 
to be a monotheist versus a polytheist. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. And after the smoke is all gone, the sun will come up with healing in its rays. Think of the warm sunshine coming in the morning after a long, miserable fire. Where will I have been during that fire? He says, But for you who fear the name, fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its rays and its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. So the righteous will have been preserved during this time in a special place. Where's the stall? It's in the barn, right? Where do you put a calf at night to keep it safe? You bring it into the barn, you put it in its stall, you close the door and you close the barn door and then the fire came through. But in the morning when the sun comes up, the doors will open and you'll go out, it says, leaping like a calf from the stall. Have you ever seen a calf leap in the open field? It's very cute. It's like a puppy, right? They're out there jumping around, rolling around things. It's strange because it's a large animal. He says, you'll go out leaping like a calf from the stall in the morning, coming out of the barn and playing and frolicking. And he says, and you will trample down the wicked under your feet because they will be the ashes under your feet. All gone. This is the image of the restoration we find in all the prophets, that you'll be like, like calves or, or lambs feeding among the rubble after the destruction. See this over and over again. The righteous remnant that is there after God's wrath has wiped out the wicked. Now, what is he referring to? Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. He's not pre-exilic. I thought all that happened in the Babylon exile. Jerusalem was destroyed. What's going on? Well, something you find in the post-exilic prophets is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again. And you want to make sure you're one of the calves in the stall when it happens. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day. In fact, look at verse 4. Remember the Torah, the law of my servant Moses and his statutes. What statutes are so important about that we find in Moses? All 365 laws? Over and over you find the law of Moses, the statutes, the ordinances that Israel keeps or doesn't keep, the things that keep coming up over and over again, is not whether or not they want cheese on their burger or whether they felt the fish. No, that's not it. It's whether or not they keep the big and great commandment. Chapter 20, verse 1 and following of the Sinai Covenant in the book of Exodus, I am the Lord your God, you shall have another of gods before me. I brought you out of Egypt. No one else did. Don't make images, verse 4, of any of these gods and fall down and worship them. So the people of Israel are told, they're told over and over again, there is only one true God of the universe. But man, including Israel, even though they have this special revelation, continuously goes, as St. Paul says, to worship the creature instead of the creator. They make a golden calf and think it's a god, the god Apis, instead of the god who created the calf history of mankind, even tragically among a special group of mankind, Israel, God's kingdom in the Old Testament. When they received the law, as St. Stephen says, they broke it. Right? That same mountain, while Mount Moses went up there to get the directions of how to build the house for God to dwell among them, they built a golden calf. So verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse, right? Rather than a blessing. So Elijah's going to return. Remember, Elijah went up in the fiery chariot. He's coming back. The book of Sirach says this too. And he does come back in two ways. John the Baptist. As we'll see, Jesus will refer to John the Baptist as Elijah. The, the angel Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1 that he will come in the spirit of Elijah. And yet Elijah will return in the parallel to the baptism that is at the transfiguration. right? When we get Moses and Elijah again. So, again, knowing the structure of Matthew, extremely important. Knowing these Old Testament references, extremely important. And also knowing that the word of God is eternal, right? So a prophecy comes and it's fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled. And every time it gets more beautiful as a flower flowers and reflowers and blossoms again. Now, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 1, as we saw there, what does that have to do with Isaiah chapter 40? What's missing? What's missing for us is our knowledge of the Old Testament and our understanding of how the people understood that when God spoke, he was always saying the same thing. And especially when you heard passages from the prophets that sounded similar, they understood them as basically the same prophecy. And you can see this in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, Mark says, when John the Baptist comes, this was to fulfill what was said by Isaiah the prophet. Turn over there to Mark and see this intermediary text. Chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. That's not Isaiah. What is that? That's Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. The second part is Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The St. Mark, the evangelist, writer of the words of Peter in Rome, does he not know the prophets? Oh, yeah, he does. He knows them so well. They can show you that there's the same story. It's the same prophecy. Because Isaiah chapter 40 was not fulfilled. Not yet. The people of Israel returned. There was no glory cloud leading them. Zerubbabel was a great guy, but he wasn't a glory cloud or a pillar of fire leading them from Babylon. And furthermore, as you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 and following, it doesn't look like the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and the return. Something's missing. It's the presence of God and the Messiah. The visions of Ezekiel, the restoration of the temple, look nothing like what we see when they return from Babylon. In fact, it's so different. That it says the old men, when they returned, and they saw the temple, the foundation being laid, they began to weep because they knew that this temple would be nothing like the old one. And furthermore, it didn't look anything like what Ezekiel said it was going to look like. And that's because Ezekiel wasn't looking at the temple of Zerubbabel or eventually what became the temple of Herod. And Isaiah chapter 40 was not talking about the return from Babylon, at least not in its ultimate fulfillment. They were talking about what we're seeing right here. And Malachi gives the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 once again. And now we hear Mark telling us as well that that's the same prophecy. And so what's missing for us when we're reading Matthew's Gospel is, again, that Palestinian Christian tradition. A scene, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, is the same, the same text. Tradition, right? As Tevia said. Very important. So, back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Now you understand why he says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, right? What's missing in there or what's assumed for you as a 
Palestinian Christian? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 4. John, in case you missed it, he now tells you, John wore camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, leather belt. Hmm, what's that mean? Elijah again, right? He shows you that John the Baptist, if you didn't catch the allusion to Malachi, he, he screams at you, Elijah now. Because in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah is described as the one who wore a hair cloth garment and a leather belt around himself. In fact, he's known by his outfit among all the prophets. Elijah has returned. But again, remember, Elijah will return again in the parallel to this text in the Transfiguration. Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and he ate the food of locusts and wild honey, and then went out to him, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region, all the Jordan, and the river were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to you, you brood of vipers. What's a Pharisee? What do you think of when you think of a Pharisee? Hypocrite? Sure, we can typically think of that. But that's not why people became Pharisees in the first century. They didn't say, they'd see a bunch of Pharisees and say, man, those guys are the best hypocrites I know. <laughs> I'm sure my dad would be proud if I became a hypocrite like them. They'd go up to him and say, you guys are great hypocrites. Teach me to be a hypocrite like you. No. The reason why we think that is we know of Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 23. Pharisees, scribes, you hypocrites. You know the story of the Pharisee and the publican in the Gospel of Luke, right? Self-righteous hypocrite there. But the Pharisees didn't start out that way. The parashim, the separated ones, they were trying to solve the problem of the first century. Where is the glory cloud of God? Where is the Messiah? Daniel said he would come by now. Where is he? And the Pharisees reasoned that the reason why we got in this mess in the first place is sin. And therefore, the way we're going to get out of this mess is to remove sin. And maybe, as Malachi chapter 1 had said, once we are righteous, the glory cloud of God will appear. So the Pharisees set up hedges around the laws. The law said, don't harvest grain on the Sabbath. Disciples of Jesus go out and they're plucking grain and eating. The Pharisees jump out of the bush and say, what are they doing? The law says you can't do that. The law doesn't say you can't pluck grain on the Sabbath to eat. It says don't go out and take your sickle to the field. A guy gets up on the, uh, a guy's carrying his pallet on the Sabbath and five Pharisees tackle him. Right? Get off me. What are you doing? What are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? Jesus of Nazareth told me, he healed me, he told me to go home. Take up your pallet. Where is this guy? So, what's the problem there? The Pharisees knew that carrying your pallet on the Sabbath was not against the Torah, but it surely broke the hedge around the Torah. And if a man's going to carry his pallet on the Sabbath, then what's he going to do next? If a man's going to pluck grain on the Sabbath, then the next day he's going to take his sickle out. They put hedges around the laws. The Torah said, don't do this. They said, don't even get close to it. Sabbath, don't work. Pharisee said, don't even breathe. <laughs> the, 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 the Sabbath said, tithe on your, your barley and the first fruits and all of these things. And they tithed on the mint and the dill even, the backyard spices they grew for their kitchen, lest they would forget to tithe on the barley and the wheat. Right? These are hedges around the law. Seems like a good idea, the hedge around the law. The problem is, is the hedge itself begin to become the focus, and they miss the point of the whole thing in the middle, as Jesus will tell them. 
right? You tithe on your mint and your dill, which is fine, I guess, if you want. I didn't tell you to do that. But, but you forgot the weightier things, the law. You'll get into that in chapter 5 of this gospel. Now, in chapter 4, we hear about him condemning the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were another religious party of the time. The Sadducees controlled the temple primarily. The Levites, the priests. We're going to see Pharisees and Sadducees all over the gospel. We've got to understand who these people are. What are the differences of the Sadducees and the Pharisees? It was like the Democrats and Republicans today. Uh, they controlled the region. There were other groups, the Zealots and the Essenes and things, but these were the major parties, religious political parties. The Pharisees hated Herod. The Pharisees hated Pontius Pilate. If a Herodian turned his back on a Pharisee, would stab him. A Sadducee? No, 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 don't mess with Herod. Don't bother him. The Sadducees believed that the most important thing was that the book of Leviticus was preserved. That the liturgical factory describing the book of Leviticus continued to move. Everything else was secondary to that. Now, they had a motive for this. The Sadducees primarily controlled the priesthood and Levites, right? This is their job. The temple. This is how they get paid. So, the Sadducees controlled the Levites and the priests. Most of them were of the, of the Sadducean party. And they had a very small canon. It was only the Torah, the five books of Moses. And therefore, they also didn't believe in resurrection. See that in Acts of the Apostles, a major issue. Because there's nowhere in the Torah that you have a clear reference to resurrection. Although Jesus shows them, there's an allusion to it. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of the living, not of the dead. That's why he's talking to the Sadducees. But the Pharisees believed in the Torah and the books of wisdom and the prophets. They had the canon. We inherited the canon from them. The same canon, the Septuagint. So this is the larger canon. So they believed in resurrection. Again, you can see these issues arising in the book of Acts. Both parties, though, trying to do some right and also motivated by other issues, are condemned by John the Baptist because they weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They weren't bringing the people to repentance. They weren't preparing them for the coming of the kingdom of God, which Daniel said was coming very quickly. Malachi said he was on his way. And neither of them were really doing the right thing. Hypocrisy had infested the Pharisees. And again, as we go through the gospel, see some of this, these issues. So chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember the refiner's fire coming? Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, right into the barn, preserve the calves, right? But... The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Look at the imagery back to Malachi here. Verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John sees what Jesus says. You don't need any repentance. The rest of us do. And Jesus says to him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Dikaisune. Righteousness. That is, so that the law may be fulfilled. That is, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That the word of God might be fulfilled. And what does that fulfill? Well, baptize me, John, and you'll see. So he baptizes him. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend 
on him like a dove, and alighting on him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What does that imagery remind you of the Spirit coming down upon him? A lot, there's a lot here. This is, we could spend hours on just that text. Good. First and foremost, primarily, the first thing you should think of is the anointing of David, the Spirit coming down upon him. You say, well, what's the relation? But Samuel did that. This is John the Baptist. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot more going on here. And that is, remember, Samuel was the son of Hannah. Right? Samuel is the son of Hannah, and Samuel wore the linen ephod like a priest. Hannah's hymn is the first time we hear about the Messiah coming, and Hannah's hymn. Her son ends up working in the temple, wearing, wearing the linen ephod, and doing what Eli the priest should have been doing. And he eventually is the one who anoints the Messiah, and eventually anoints David. And here we have John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, again, think of the parallels here. Zechariah, the priest in the temple, right? John the Baptist is in the temple, though. He's out of the Jordan River, doing what the whole temple system was intended to do, bring about repentance and relationship with God. But it had become this liturgical factory. So he was out there instead, ministering to the people, being priest for God to the people. And there, out there, he anoints the son of David and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And then we hear the voice from heaven saying, this is my son, my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. That should remind you of 2 Samuel 7, the son of David, who is the son of God, but should also remind you of something else, in whom I am well pleased. And that's where we pick up, as the individual said earlier, with the imagery of Israel. We're going to see Jesus now coming through the Jordan River, coming through the water, going out into the wilderness, like Israel coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, going out in the wilderness for 40 years and failing three big tests. Jesus goes out in the wilderness, the Son of God, and all three tests that Israel failed, he passes. And then he goes in to Galilee and begins his earthly ministry, calling the beginning of his 12 disciples. Okay, and now we're out of time. Are there any questions? <laughs> we had talked about holding Q&A until Saturday. Is that okay, okay with yeah, you? Okay, fine with me. And by the way, you got quite a compliment online. Uh, Antonio, I don't know where he's calling from. Hey, Antonio. He says this is the best study on the Gospel of Matthew he has ever heard. Well, I so, can't take credit for it. Thank you very much. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.